from Matthew chapter 28 verses 5 to 10 and then jumping to 16 and 17 and it's relating to the resurrection. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. Go to Galilee. There they will see me. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thanks, Linda. Uh, Many in our world think that religion and faith in God are what you do when you stop thinking. Uh, That faith in God and Jesus and the Bible is either irrelevant uh, to their lives or only for the simple-minded or the uh, right-wing conservative. Uh, I was chatting actually with a lady from uh, just up the street here uh, from church. Uh, a few months ago, and she she just could not believe that I believe that the Bible as a whole uh, is God's word. Particularly, she couldn't fathom that someone who seemed to be sane and polite uh, <coughs> and prepared to give her a lift to the shops, which is what I was doing, um, would believe that God sacrificing his son to save us, that anyone would believe that, particularly a sane person. Uh, she couldn't understand why anyone would want to believe in such a cruel God. Now, I'm sure there are many other reasons that, as Christians, our friends or family and neighbours might balk at our faith in God and Jesus and the Bible, even if only in private. But the expectation of the Bible is that at some point uh, it's going to get public. And that at that point, we Christians should be prepared to give an answer to people. Uh, This is exactly what the Bible tells us. So we read in uh, one of the letters in the New Testament, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Christians, we need to be prepared to give an answer for our hope in God and in Jesus. And it's to everyone, uh, not just to those who are polite and uh, genuine, but everyone. Everyone who asks for the reason for our faith and our hope. The Bible anticipates this, even welcomes people questioning faith in God and in the Bible. Sometimes I've noticed, I don't know maybe uh, if you have, but those who don't believe when they're chatting with me and they find out that I uh, believe in God and that I believe in the Bible, they're actually hesitant to ask, uh, to to question me about my faith. I don't know if you've had that experience. And maybe because they think it's disrespectful or 
judgmental to question, uh, but the Bible itself actually welcomes such questioning. So if you're not sure how Christians reconcile their faith with this or that thing in the world, then ask them to give a reason. The Bible invites you to. And for Christians, irrespective of how we're asked, we're to reply with gentleness and respect. That's what the Bible goes on to say. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keep a, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So in replying to those who don't believe, Christians need to be gentle and respectful and they need to keep a clear conscience when they do it. That is, they should only say what they know. And so to that end, to help us all know better some of the reasons for trusting in Jesus, as uh, we've mentioned uh, last week, uh, for the rest of this term, we're going to go, be going through uh, a few topics touching on the reasons for God. Now, this isn't because uh, Christians think they've got all the answers. Some, some might think they do. They don't. Uh, we don't. But we do believe that the God of Jesus does. And while he may not have given us the answers to every question, we have the more modest belief that he's given us enough to trust him even enough to put our hope in Jesus. And a big part of Christians' trust in Jesus has got to do with their trust in the Bible, which can be hard for people to accept, like my friend up the street. Uh, people struggle to accept the Bible is not full of mistakes or that it's just mistaken in places or it's scientifically inaccurate or historically unreliable or culturally regressive. So how can Christians say they believe in the Bible? Well, to give something of an answer to that, we're going to touch on two broad things. Firstly, uh, whether or not the Bible is reliable. And then secondly, uh, whether science and the Bible are friends or enemies. So that's where we're going. So first up, is the Bible reliable? Or is it just a, a myth and historically inaccurate, as many think in our world? Well, in his uh, very popular novel uh, a while ago, The Da Vinci Code. Uh, anyone read The Da Vinci Code? Yeah, a few of us. It's, a, it's an old book now. But uh, Dan Brown, uh, who wrote it, he, he drew on this idea that uh, the four Gospels of the New Testament, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, that these were actually written uh, to build up church power by church authorities. That's uh, kind of thinking, while the rest of the ancient documents at the time, what's being called the Gnostic Gospels, uh, as, as they some call them, that those were actually suppressed. Suppressed because those documents actually suggested things about Jesus that the church didn't like and that uh, church leaders couldn't use to have authority over the masses. That things like uh, Jesus was only human, uh, that he had a wife, that he, was, he didn't really rise from the dead, but here's the thing. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, uh, they were written in the lifetime of the events that they describe. And they were written from the perspective of the eyewitnesses of those events and often written by the eyewitnesses themselves. Unlike this, the Gnostic Gospels, they were written much later and, and as such, they weren't recognised as authoritative in the early church. As the New Testament scholar uh, N.T. Wright says, the canonical Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, 
were being read and quoted as carrying authority in the early and middle second century. Whereas we do not even hear of the non-canonical ones, which is the Gnostic Gospels, until the middle or end of that century. As such, the New Testament uh, professor, a guy called Bart Ehrman, uh, who's quite critical of the Bible, nonetheless, he says of the New Testament Gospels, he says, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are the oldest and best sources we have for knowing about the life of Jesus. And that this is the view of all serious historians of antiquity of every kind, from committed evangelical Christians to hardcore atheists. Indeed, details in those Gospels point to their historical reliability. Uh, like in the Gospel of Mark, uh, in chapter 15, where Jesus, we're told uh, he's going to be crucified, and we're told this. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. It's a weird little detail. And at the time, though, that it was written, clearly Alexander and Rufus were known to the author and known to the readers, the original readers. As one of those readers, original readers, you could have followed up Alexander and Rufus. Uh, You could have asked them how their dad was. How's Simon? Uh, Maybe you could have asked Simon himself. So, the Gospels seem to be historically reliable. But what about uh, the rest of the New Testament? Yeah, there are 27 books and letters in the New Testament, after all, from the letters of the Apostle Paul to those of the Apostle Peter to those of the Apostle John and others. Well, furious, few uh, serious historians, they doubt the whole of the New Testament was written. They don't doubt that the whole of the New Testament was written between 40 and 100 CE, all right? so in the first century. And while there were no copies of the original manuscripts in existence, there are more than 24,000 early manuscript copies or portions of the New Testament in existence. About 5,300 of those are written in Greek and the rest are in other languages like Latin. And unlike other any other ancient documents, these were written remarkably close in time to the original. Uh, the historian and Christian speaker, John Dixon, he put together this helpful graph. Sorry, if you can't see all the particulars of it, you can come and uh, get a copy of that off me. Or as Tony's doing, you can take a photo of it. Um, uh, in comparison with uh, other ancient documents, say like Homer's Iliad, and I'm sure we've all read that, uh, or the works of Plato or Caesar or Sophocles, the sheer number of manuscripts and the closeness of time to the original don't come anywhere near the New Testament documents. Uh, As such, the late New Testament professor, F.F. Bruce, he said this, "Uh, If the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. It's a curious fact that historians have often been more readier Uh, much readier to trust the New Testament records than of many theologians. As historical documents, the New Testament is as historically reliable as you can get. But what about uh, the 39 books in the Old Testament? Are they historically reliable? Well, this is a a massive topic uh, that we can't possibly fully answer here and now, but it's worth noting at least one thing, uh, and this is crucial for Christians. 
Jesus himself thought that the Old Testament documents were reliable. The only Bible that he knew was the Old Testament. Uh, And he said this, as recorded in the Gospel of Luke, it's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. The law there is a kind of a a catch-all term for the Old Testament. And Jesus was convinced that every word, letter, every punctuation mark in the Old Testament was more reliable than the whole created order. Uh, Many years ago, when I was in art college, uh, I was in a very small class where everyone, we all knew each other, and there were two Dans. Um, Anyway, one Dan in one class very uncharacteristically got up, uh, he got all fired up in one class, and he started having a go at the lecturer, just calling down fire on him, uh, just how useless the subject was and how useless he was as a lecturer. It was pretty full on. Uh, Some of it we, the rest of us felt was a little bit true, but we weren't yeah, we didn't go yelling at the lecturer in the class. Uh, as you can imagine, the lecturer was gobsmacked. Uh, the rest of us were dumbstruck. We, we weren't even sure uh, where to look. But not the other Dan. Remember I mentioned there were two Dans? Uh, the other Dan, he quickly stood up and he announced to the whole room, I would like to distance myself from everything that Dan just said. And with that, second Dan was the most alone person in the room. See, whatever your final thought on Jesus might be, almost everyone thinks he's a great teacher. You can go ahead and disagree with him about the reliability of the Old Testament, but like Second Dan, you might be standing alone. There's good reason to think the Bible is reliable as a whole, as an historical document. But what about all the uh, seeming contradictions uh, in the Bible? Uh, Bert Ehrman, the professor that we mentioned earlier, he, he's, he's written extensively about the differences in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and he reckons the Bible is irreconcilably contradictory. <laughs> For example, he points out that Luke's gospel has Jesus at the end ascending to heaven right after Jesus' resurrection appearances to his disciples, but in the book of Acts, uh, it tells of Jesus appearing to the disciples over 40 days before he flies away. So what is it? Did he... Did he go back to heaven straight away after rising from the dead or uh, 40 days later? Well, well, which one is it? Can't be both. But, as others have noted, this uh, might just be a rhetorical flourish. Uh, you know, like when someone says about their boss, you know, one minute there he's telling me to do this and then the next minute he's telling me to do that, but the time between the two tellings was actually a week, Right. But nobody's batting their ear. No one's pulling them up on the historical accuracy of what they're saying in the middle of their story, right? Everyone knows what they mean. It's the same with the Gospels. You know, this happened and then then he was gone in the clouds. Uh, This and and many other instances where the Bible seems to be contradictory in the timing of things particularly can generally be satisfactorily explained. If we allow the, the author to be using a literary technique or a rhetorical flourish, might also be that the gospel writers were writing theologically before they were writing chronologically. This is what we're used to when it comes to the recording of history. You know, that they were writing to make a theological point and arrange the historical events in such a way to make that point. And they do it quite cleverly. So in Mark chapter 6 is a good example. There the story of John the Baptist losing his head for being a messenger for God 
uh, is deliberately sandwiched in between being uh, told of Jesus' disciples, going out, spreading Jesus' message, and then coming back to tell him about it. Now, even if John the Baptist's death and the disciples going out uh, happened at different times, that, that doesn't invalidate the history of either of those events, right? But together, uh, it makes a powerful theological point about the cost of discipleship, right? And we know this kind of technique anyway. Uh, we see it all the time in films and novels, don't we? Uh, the second movie that my wife, Megs, and I ever saw together at cinema was uh, the movie Memento. Uh, this is a trippy film that flicks back and forth from the past to the present to the future, and the film actually starts with the end of the story, which was unfortunate because Megs and I got there ten minutes late. Uh, <laughs> and so the entire film I spent going, I'm sure this is really cool and sophisticated, uh, but I have no idea where this is going. And by the end of the film, I still didn't know. Uh, it was actually halfway, because the end of the, f- the film actually ends halfway through the story. Uh, so I was no more the wiser. But had I had seen the beginning... <laughs> it would have made perfect sense. Uh, it wasn't the playing with time frames that put me off. I can do that. We can do that. Uh, it was that I missed the beginning <laughs> of the end of the film, um, which is a cautionary tale, I think, for all of us. Uh, we can learn from particularly when it comes to the Bible. Firstly, don't miss the beginning of the book. <laughs> the book of Genesis is a must-read. But as you read it, they have to be sensitive to the type of literature that it is and sensitive to the big story that it's trying to tell. This is a good rule of thumb when reading the whole of the Bible. If you read something that seems contradictory, check to see if the author is trying to communicate something maybe a little deeper by using a paradox or a metaphor or, or a parable or poetry. You don't have to always take it literally for it to be reliable reliable history and reliable literature. So, that's the first thing, uh, the reliability of the Bible. But what about the second thing, uh, science and the Bible? Are they friends or are they enemies? Because people might say that science has disproved Christianity in a number of ways. I'm going to uh, mention a couple of big ones. First, some might say that uh, science proves that miracles, for instance, can't happen. And so the Bible can't be true because it talks about miracles like they actually happened. But, as uh, Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, points out, uh, the scientist must always assume there is a natural cause. That is because natural causes are the, only, are the only kind its methodology can address. It's another thing to insist that science has proven there can't be any other kind there would be no experimental model for testing the statement, no supernatural cause for any natural phenomenon is possible. It is therefore a philosophical presupposition and not a scientific finding. Science is the study of natural phenomena, right? The stuff of the senses of observing and measuring matter of what's material and physical, but not what is supernatural. That, that's actually beyond science's ability to measure. But to presuppose it can, that science can measure, it's like a drunk presupposing the only place to look for his lost car keys is directly under the street lamp because that's the clearest place to look. Science doesn't have the eyes to look further than the street lamp, so to speak. And so it can't prove one way or another if miracles happened or can happen. 
and neither can it prove one way or another the existence of God. And so there is no logical reason, if your first premise is that there is a God, that there would also be miracles. Because the God who made and sustained all things, which with certain laws and rules, could also change and suspend those laws and rules however and whenever he wanted. As such, science just can't prove one way or another the miracles recorded in the Bible. It's not so much an enemy or a friend, or a friend, then, uh, of the Bible, to the Bible in this. However, uh, it's interesting to note that in her book, uh, Confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin uh, notes that modern science was first developed by Christians. Uh, two Franciscan friars, uh, Roger Bacon and William Ockham, might have heard of him, Ockham's Razor, uh, was a particular theory that he had and is used in philosophy, uh, laid the empirical and methodological... Yeah, I said it incorrectly, but you know, you you can read it. Uh, Foundations for the scientific method. And that indeed the scientific method, particularly the step of experimenting to test a hypothesis, so there are seven steps in the scientific method, and they're... The uh, fifth step, I think it is, particularly the step of experimenting to test a hypothesis, uh, because of the basic assumption uh, that you probably won't get it right the first time, and even if you do, you shouldn't trust your judgments on just one positive experiment. You know why that's a a rule? It's a healthy and humble scepticism of scientific conclusion. And this is what leads to better controlled experiments and in turn creates better scientific theories. What's the principle behind that? Humility. Humility is a key Christian value taught in the Bible and, as it turns out, a key value in good science, which is based on a method first developed, not surprisingly, by Christians. So modern science is no enemy to the Bible. In some ways, it's a child of the Bible. So that's the first issue, science disproving the Bible. The second that I'm going to raise Uh, that may be an issue for many, is that of evolution. Uh, A gentleman that uh, Tim Keller engages in his Reason for God course that he ran uh, said uh, this. He said, evolution is very crucial for me, it being able to mesh into the Bible properly, because I definitely believe in evolution. So if the Bible says evolution doesn't exist, then I feel it loses credibility. And I'm sure he's not alone in his thinking. Uh, So, is the Bible at odds uh, with evolution? Uh, In that Reason for God course, Tim Keller suggests that if someone says something like, I don't believe in God because I believe in evolution, one response uh, might be, what do you mean by evolution? It's a good question. Because while some might see evolution as an all-encompassing worldview explaining the meaning and purpose of every part of our lives, that's actually a far cry Uh, from seeing it as a biological process that explains how species have changed and adapted over the years. And as a a worldview then, evolution is no less a faith position than Christianity, but as a scientific biological hypothesis, there seems to be little reason for conflict. Conflict between the biblical understanding of God as the creator and a scientific exploration of the way in which God has gone about his creating process. Who says God couldn't have used evolution as a biological process to change and adapt species? He could have. Uh, A key element in evolution 
uh, is that it takes millions of years. Uh, Professor John Lennox, the mathematician and Christian writer in his book Seven Days That Divide the World, he seeks in that book to fuse the evolutionary factor of, million of millions of years into a reading of the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, you may not agree with him, or the many other Christians, uh, Christian thinkers and Christian scientists who seem to have no issues holding to the idea of evolution at the same time as believing the Bible. But it does seem that at, a, at the level of a scientific believing uh, scientific hypothesis, uh, biological hypothesis, evolution is not incompatible with faith in the God of the Bible. Indeed, uh, a guy called uh, Ard Lewis, Professor Ard Lewis, uh, who currently leads an interdisciplinary um, research group. This group kind of investigates scientific problems on the border between disciplines such as chemistry, physics and biology. And Ard he actually uh, reckons that the evolutionary process isn't random and the field of biological options is hugely narrowed by nature's preference for simple symmetrical solutions, which points to a non-random elegance that's actually going on at, at the fundamental level behind evolution. So science then, even evolutionary science, can be friends with faith in God and the Bible. Because intellectually speaking, they both depend on orderliness, that at the deepest level there is order in the, in the cosmos. And so while some might think that the more science advances, the more faith in the Bible has to retreat, retreat it seems that actually the opposite is true. As John Dixon says, it's precisely because the universe displays rational order from the particle to the cosmos that so many people are convinced that it comes from a beautiful mind. The more order there is in the universe, the more science progresses and the more plausible God seems. So, finally, as we wrap up, having considered the reliability of the Bible and that science and the Bible can be more than friends, uh, it's worth looking at, I think, the historical account from Eyewitnesses of Jesus' Resurrection from the Dead that we read at the beginning in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, uh, where, we, where we read first up that we're told uh, the first to testify to Jesus' resurrection were actually women, which is dumb. That's a dumb move if you were trying to make up a religion back in the first century in the Middle East because a, women's test, a woman's testimony was worth next to nothing back then. So unless it was true, you just wouldn't add, you just wouldn't include that detail. Furthermore, Matthew notes that some still doubted. Did you, did you pick that up when we read it earlier? When they saw him, that is the disciples saw the resurrected Jesus back from the dead in the flesh, some of them worshipped him, but some doubted. Now again, it seems odd that Matthew would include something that seems contradictory to what the message about Jesus would want from his readers. Unless it was true. And this is a challenge, I think, for us all. Clearly, even if the resurrected Jesus were physically standing right in front of us, like he was with some back then, we too still may doubt. Not for lack of evidence of miracles or the historical reliability of it. There just may be some other less objective reason that we doubt. As Tim Keller notes again in his Reason for God discussion group, 
Nobody's really objective when tackling the historical claim of Jesus' resurrection because of the implications it has on each of our lives, personal implications. If we were a judge in a case, residing in a case, and it came to light that there was a conflict of interest for us, we could recuse ourselves, right? We could uh, let someone else take our place and reside as job uh, as the judge, but we can't do that with the resurrection account of Jesus the historical account of Jesus' resurrection. We just can't recuse ourselves with the resurrection of Jesus. We may not want it to be true. We may not. We may want it to be true. But as much as possible, we have to look at the evidence and in the humble spirit of the scientific method, be sceptical of our scepticism. And so with that in mind, I'm going to pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much that faith in God, faith in you, and faith in the Bible and the reliability of it, and that it is a friend of modern science. We thank you that these are good reasons to have faith in Jesus, particularly his resurrection from the dead. Please help us all as we wrestle with these reasons. For those who yet believe, for them to weigh up the evidence, and for those of us who do believe, to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have when we're asked, and to do it gently and sensitively and informed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.